This is the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Blanc, episode number 92. Ready to go? You're listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast, where we'll talk about all aspects of buying apartment buildings with a special focus on raising money from others. And now, your host, Michael Blanc. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. My name is Michael Blanc. I'm excited to share with you a story by Todd Dexheimer. He was former teacher, now full-time syndicator. Just an amazing story. I'm so glad I came across him that he's going to share with you today. You know, it's just like uh, David Sweeney, police officer, episode 89, David Sweeney. If you haven't listened to that one, go ahead and listen to that as well. Just, you know, just everyday, you know, people, working people, they don't have a lot of money, weren't born with a lot of money. And they figure out a way to get into multifamily. And uh, Todd's story is, is no different. Quite a few challenges. And he, like so many other people, spent years in the single family house world before figuring out that multifamily, is, it's where it's at. And he kind of talks about what he would do differently if he got started right with multifamily right from the start. So really excited to share with you Todd's story. Let's get right into it. Hey, Todd, welcome to the show today. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. So I'm really excited to be on your show because you've had such an interesting journey. Just give us a really quick the cliff notes before we get into the into the details. Well, quick is not in my nature, but I'll try. I started out as a high school industrial tech teacher. So I was teaching like shop class, wood tech and metals and stuff like that. And I think ever since I started teaching, I always would tell my wife, I, I got to figure out what I'm going to do when I grow up. And it ended up just trying to figure out what I'm going to do, learning and growing and reading. And I read you know, the Rich Dad, Poor Dad books and a lot of other great books along the way. And I really liked real estate and kind of got hooked into wanting to do real estate. So when I started, I started doing uh, small you know, single families and duplexes and fourplexes and stuff like that and did a lot of it before then I finally, quote unquote, graduated into multifamily. So that's, I guess, the quick and dirty about me. That's good. All right. So basically from teacher to full-time syndicator. I love it. So, all right. Now, rewind a little bit back into the day where you were still a teacher. What was going on in your life that you were considering real estate for? I'm like, what problem were you trying to solve? I think the biggest problem that I was trying to solve is I wasn't satisfied. I was doing the teaching thing, which was, it was okay. I, I liked the interaction with the students. I enjoyed doing that. I didn't like all the other stuff. There's a lot of, I guess, political stuff that goes on in the teaching uh, field. And any teachers out there probably, or past teachers out there probably understand that. I got irritated with it and it wasn't what I thought it was going to be. You know, I thought I'm molding the minds of these young people and it's going to be that, yeah, I'm getting income, but it's that feel good. And, and it just wasn't there for me. It didn't click. Right. It must have been bad enough for you to start thinking like, I think I'm going to not just switch jobs, but professions. What's going through your mind here? I mean, like, how bad was it? Because like, a lot of times I find when people change their lives in a drastic way like you did, it was more than just superficial. Like, what was going on for you at the time? It's interesting because it, for me, it wasn't like it was like, oh my gosh, it's so bad. But it's just, I know right now that I can't do this for the rest of my life. The income's not there for sure. Right. So if you're going to be a teacher, it's not for the income. And there wasn't anything there other than the income. For me, it was 
that was what teaching was for me as I started doing it. When I first started thinking about doing it, when I was going to college and all that, I thought it was going to be a lot of that satisfaction and all that, but it just never was there for me. So I just knew that I needed to move on eventually. I thought about becoming a doctor. I thought about you know doing all kinds of other stuff, but I guess I fell into real estate as, after reading books and just really thought, man, this is something I could do. Yeah. And grew from there. So when most people think about, you know, trying to get out of what they're doing and they come across like real estate investing, most people kind of think single family house investing. What what was it like for you? What was your strategy when you first started looking into it and reading books and whatever? It was like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. What did that look like at the time? Great question. Because when I first started, it was all multifamily apartment buildings. I was going to be buying 100, 200 unit buildings. That's what I was going to do. And then I didn't understand how I could do that. So I didn't have like any money. So I had to figure out how I could get into real estate. And that was the single family route. So I just defaulted back into single family. At the time, there was a lot of good resources, but there wasn't nearly the resources out there today. The other thing is single family was so good at the time, right? So I started in 2008, right when the- Good time. Good time. Yeah, right when everybody is running away from real estate. And I was too naive to understand what really happened. All I saw is that, boy, I mean, I can buy a house for $60,000 and I can rent it for $1,400, $1,500 a month. Hello, you know, I'll buy that house. And so it really worked well. I just started buying houses as many as I could. So you looked at department buildings, which is great, but you dismissed it like so many other people yeah. do because it's an advanced strategy I need a lot of money for. Now we'll get back to that because you figured it out <laughs> later on. So you went after single family houses. How did you finance that thing? I mean, as a teacher, you probably didn't have a huge amount of savings. Like, well, how did you get started with just doing what you were doing with the single family house stuff? So I would have been what, like 26-ish at the time when I bought my first place. And it was my wife and I, she had a good income and I had, you know, I mean, let's make a 30 grand a year. So it's not like it's nothing, but we didn't have any kids. So we had enough money set aside where we could use pretty much all of our funds to buy a house for a rental property. And we also bought our own house to live in that we basically did a, people call it house hacking maybe now. I don't know. There's a, there's some term for it, but we lived in the house and essentially flipped it while we lived in there. And then we bought our first rental house at the same time and renovated that, did the buy, renovate and found out that we could actually refinance it, which was really cool because financing kind of dried up at that time too. But I ran into a great lender that said, hey, let's refinance this thing and pull all your money out of it. And that's exactly what we did then. So we had like pretty much our last like 20 grand into real estate. I shouldn't say our last, our only 20 grand into real estate. And then we were able to refinance, pull all that money out. Plus, I think we pulled out an extra like 10, 20 grand. I can't remember the exact number, but pulled out a little extra money. And we were able to then do that again a couple of times in roll. So... Yeah, that's awesome. And and that was working pretty well, I assume. And at what point did you get into a multifamily? So we did that, you know, and at the time, again, lending was really tough. So you could only get really like four loans in your personal name. Then I had to start getting creative. I had to start calling a bunch of banks. I had to figure out how I could keep this thing going. So I started flipping. So I started flipping. I flipped like 150-ish houses. But with those profits, we'd take and we'd buy rental properties. And so built up the rental portfolio, one to four family stuff to, I don't know, at one time I was at like 70 some units. I never stopped dreaming about the multifamily. That's always been the goal and it's never been out of my head. I just, I got distracted, I would say is is the easiest way to 
explain it is I was flipping. I was busy. I was buying and I was doing what I knew and I just got distracted. And I didn't think I graduated yet. Right. And I yeah. think that was the biggest holdback because I had that fear and that I had to graduate. And so finally, I bought a 15 unit building in I think in 2013 ish. A 15 unit building. I brought in a private partner. I had a business partner at the time. So that was our first multifamily. Then my first next multifamily wasn't until last year. So we can talk a little bit about that too, because I bought a multifamily in 2013, 15 unit, and I didn't buy another one until 2016. Yeah. And that's probably because from our previous conversation, it didn't go so well. And yeah. you're like, I don't know if it's such a good idea. So talk about you know what happened and then what your lessons were from that experience. Yeah. So it didn't go so well. We ended up making money and I ended up paying my investor and things were okay. But there was a lot of things that just didn't go very well. And one of the biggest things was this building that we bought, it was a value-add opportunity, right? But what I didn't realize is a building built in 1882, I think it was, can have a lot of problems. (laughs) And this thing had every problem you could imagine. So, I mean, we had you know, on my wife's birthday, I'm taking phone calls and running into St. Paul to stop a water leak. And we had bursted pipes all the time because it was old, rusty, nasty, galvanized piping and cast iron. And the plumbing was a mess. The renovation budget was $150,000. And that didn't include all the plumbing and other stuff. It was just a constant problem of repair and the expenses. I mean, the expenses were 80% to our income. It was ridiculous. So, so you never got done making repairs. Now, you did mention before you get back into the, that story, you did say you, there was an investor that you paying back. What does that mean? What kind of investor was it? How did you find them? Uh, how did you structure the deal with them to agree you're comfortable talking about that? Yeah. Yeah. So I'll preface this by saying I didn't do it the right way. Right. So I didn't know any better. I didn't set up a syndication, which I should have set up and you know, hopefully the IRS isn't listening, but this was back in 2013. We didn't do it 100% right. We did some things okay, but he was a passive investor. So truly how we set it up, it was a partnership and he was investing with his IRA. I found him actually through my business partner. My business partner had knew him and was friends with them. And so it worked. It was okay. In hindsight, you know, obviously we would have done things differently with that setup. I can't remember the split. It wasn't very good, actually, to him. I can't believe that we had it set up that low. I think he was at like 20%. He funded the whole thing. When we sold it, we didn't make the return I had expected. And so I ended up giving him 50% of all the profits because I wanted to make it right with him. Yeah, it's a great way to do it. So it didn't go quite, quite right, right? There's way more repairs than you thought. You got an investor on board. And you know the project turned out okay. You made some money at the end, probably yeah. probably not commensurate with the effort you know that had to go in, and especially when you're comparing it to a house flip. But you know what? Now it's your first deal, and you're in there probably, and, and you got into it, you're like, I'm not so sure this was a good idea. Why would I jump into a second deal when this one's really not going that great? And so by the time you got out of there, I think you said you sold it in two years something like that, then you're probably still a little gun shy and you're like, I'm not so sure. Yeah. But it's so funny, even my first deal I did was very similar, missed our projections by you know two years by a mile. And it turned out okay at the in the end. And it just writes itself a little bit. And it really wasn't a lot of fun, even though in these experiences, you learn a lot, right? So what are some of the takeaways from that first deal, looking back going, you know, here's what I learned to not do or to do next time around? 
first of all, you have to understand what type of building you're buying. And I have a construction background. I should have known better and I should have gotten more people involved in the inspection. It was old galvanized piping and cast iron waste and an old steam boiler. And so you have to understand what type of building you're buying. If you're buying an old building with old mechanicals, understand that all those mechanicals you should be budgeting to replace. That would have saved me so much head damage coming into this thing if we would have just expected that we had to replace all this plumbing. So understand what you're buying is number one. Other mistake that we made is we didn't hide anything from our investor, but the financials, we didn't provide them to them on a timely manner. They weren't clear and concise. Everything wasn't done like the way I do it now, where everything now my investors can see, everything that's happening. And that's really not what he was able to see. So I think I think he had some frustrations. I, I know he had some frustrations with that. That was something that I would I would make sure if you're going to do it, if you're going to involve other people's money, I was very ethical and honest with them. Like I said, I gave him 50% versus his 20% that we promised him. He didn't even ask for it. I just said, look, you know, we didn't do as well and here's more money. But you're running it like a business. This is a business if you're going to be using other people's money. So make sure you run it like a business. So that would be another thing. Making sure your finances are, are right and minding your books. Understanding where your expenses and income is coming from. And a lot of people don't do that when they're investing. The income's coming in, they think they're making so much money, but they don't understand where the expenses are. And if you don't understand your expenses, how can you control them? Yeah, that's right. So you got in this deal. You said, uh, if I'm kind of right, it was three years between that one and your second multifamily. What happened between then? Were you just kind of hanging out or were you doing something? I was still flipping houses. Even during that apartment time, I was flipping. And that was the other thing too, was I was very distracted. I wasn't as focused on as what I should have been. I was so distracted because I think in 2013, I bought somewhere like 40 some houses or 40 some properties between flipping and buying for rentals. And so then I got this apartment building and I'm not spending the time and and effort on it. And I tried to manage it, self-manage it myself. And that was another thing. understand how to delegate. I've learned so so since then. I guess I was busy flipping. And in that time between this first 15-unit apartment building and my next apartment building, I, I split up with my business partner. We just had different ways we needed to go. It was really after that split that I sat down and I looked. And I looked at my investments. And I looked at all my flips versus all my rentals and projecting what the rentals are worth today if I sold them. And I went, holy cow, my rentals destroy the flips as far as return on investment. I mean, absolutely destroy them. The head damage that I'm spending on these flips is ridiculous versus even the single family rentals. At the time, I think that I reviewed that, I had 50 some units. So even at like 50 units, I'm spending just very little time on these rentals and so much time on these flips. And it's just like, what am I doing? And so then I started looking at what do I do next? You know, do I buy apartment buildings? Can I buy apartment buildings to stay in single families or what? And apartments just made so much sense. And so that's where I went. Yeah, that's awesome. So tell us a little bit about your second deal. How did it come about? Just a little bit more about that. So second deal is a deal that is actually out of state because my state, Minnesota, and the Twin Cities in particular is very heated market. And there's just not a lot of what I would say is for me, comfortable opportunity. So I researched markets and I did that for a long time. Researched markets. I came up with the market to invest in or several markets to invest in and end up investing in a 22 unit building, got owner financing, 10% down payment. 
And uh, it was a value add, needed a stick in the 22 units. I needed to stick about 80,000, I think, into it. Raised rents from, there were some units that were down to 350 bucks a month for a one bedroom, all the way up to, I think the highest one was about 480. Raised rents up to, now we're getting $550 a month. So that's, that's amazing. How'd you find it? Flew into Cincinnati and, and did a lot of research and boots on the ground and got connected with a lot of the local brokers and started searching for properties. This property I actually stumbled upon. We looked at another property that was listed and the broker said, well, I've got a property that the same seller has and I think he'd like to sell. Let me call him. So called him up and the guy said, yeah, let's go take a look at it. So we went and took a look at it and it made sense. Numbers worked. So I made an offer. I actually made an offer on that building and the other one he had listed, but the other one he had listed, somebody else bought for more than what I could pay. But the second one was actually off market. So no one knew about this but you. So yeah. that's sweet. Which was really nice. And the seller, I actually gave him two options for my offer when I gave him a uh, letter of intent. He liked the seller financing. I provided him a spreadsheet, showed him the interest that he would make throughout the term and you know what that looked like and he liked that option. So just a retired guy and still likes the cash flow but didn't want to manage the building anymore. Yeah, that's outstanding. How'd you get the equity? Did you get some refi? Did you have money saved up at this point from the flips or did you have an investor involved? I had an investor involved. So I got an investor involved with that one. We financed it, the down payment and the renovation. So yeah, yeah. That's, that's awesome. What's your advice? So you went into this market, right? Most people are buying out of area, right? So you go in this market, no one knows you from Adam. What is your, your tips for somebody to be kind of taken seriously, especially when they're coming out of town and they don't maybe have a track record? You know, what can they do to kind of be taken seriously, you know, quickly as possible? Yeah, Michael, that's a great question. And that's a really hard thing to necessarily do because obviously you're out of state. So the biggest thing is to you have to show up to the market. And I think that's really important. Some people try to do it all from your computer because you can do so much from your computer and it's expensive to travel. But I think that face-to-face is really important. You got to have a face with your name. And, and that to me is massive. So that's number one. But before you even do that, you should be trying to start relationships with local brokers and property managers and so on. So here's my approach. When I first decide this market's for me or potentially for me, then what I'm going to do is I'm going to, I'm going to go on to like LoopNet and I'm going to go on to, you know, there might be a local min car that we have, or, you know, there might be another local site that has commercial listings on it. So you're going to find who are the commercial brokers, right? Marcus and Millchap, CBRE, there's going to be some independent. So you want to find out who those brokers are and then start phoning them. Call every single one of them. Don't just send them an email. You can send them an email. That's fine. But you have to at least follow that email up with a phone call. So I'm going to talk to a local broker. We're going to talk about what I'm looking for exactly to a T. And then I'm going to you know, follow up with an email. Thanks, Jim, for the time, phone conversation. This is exactly what I'm looking for. I'm going to spell it out with them again. And then I'm going to say, would you please provide me your recommendations for property manager, lender, attorney, you know, anything that you are looking for. And then you take their referrals and you contact their referrals and you say the same thing to their referrals. You know, I'm looking for these people. Who can you recommend? Who can you recommend for a broker? Who can you recommend for a lender? And so on. And so you're building your referral list. And with that, you're going to find the same names popping up, right? You're going to find that, you know, ABC 
property management popped up on five different people's lists. Well, that's the company you probably want to be calling and seriously, you know, thinking about. So once you have, I'd say your relationships built, then you need to go into the city and really spend some time there. And don't just spend a day there, spend, you know, three days there and, and go back there in a month and spend another three days there. So Yeah. Now from the time you decided to go into Cincinnati, how long did it take you to have that deal under contract? This is just kind of guessing because I, I don't want to like look up my calendar. I think the first time I was in there was in the summer and I got that deal on a contract in the fall. I'd been there at least two times, if not three times. Yeah. So about three, four months. Yeah. Took you three to four months to get that thing under contracts. You know, I had been researching that market and reaching out to people in that market even longer. Probably my first touch in that market to somebody was early spring, maybe late winter, early spring. And then you know, by the time I bought something was, I think I closed on that building sometime in October, late September, something like that. Yeah, that's fantastic. You just recently did another one, I think. So that was, this was October. What year was this? 2016. So, okay. October, 2016. And then you syndicated your first deal recently. Can you talk about that? 84 unit building in Lexington, Kentucky, value add deal. This one's a hefty lift. We're going to put about nine, $9,000 per unit into it. Currently, it's sitting at just under 90%. I think it's about 88% occupancy. So at least good occupancy, but the rents are really low. We'll be able to raise them on average about 150 bucks a month per unit. And we'll stick, a, you know, like I said, a good chunk of money into it to get it up and running. And, and the neighborhood is seeing improvement. It's a C, C plus neighborhood, but it's seeing improvement. I don't think it'll ever become an A neighborhood, but it might get to that you know, C plus slash B minus kind of type of neighborhood. So that's definitely good as well. That was a fun process. The whole syndication, that was my first, you know, full-blown syndication. I'd always had partners a lot of times in, in deals, but never this syndication. So the raise about $800,000 and I think it was a total of 11 investors wow. for that $800,000. It was interesting. It was fun, but there was a time there where I didn't I'm going, I don't know if am I going to be able to raise this amount of money? One of the good things is I had a good chunk of money that I could put into the deal if I wanted to, but I didn't want to take all my capital and just throw it into one deal and, and then just kind of be stuck, right? I wanted to be able to have capital ready for other deals as I need. So I could have closed regardless and just put my money into it, but I didn't want to. I wanted to do the full syndication. So there's a time there where I'm going, geez, I'm going to have to put all my money into this deal. And But then all of a sudden, it's like everybody started you know, asking me, call me, email me that I had sent this deal to saying they want to be part of it. And I think I went from not even thinking I could raise, you know, 400000 to having about close to $2 million worth of money that people were interested in putting into the deal. So it was very nerving at first. So I would tell anybody just to, to stick with it. And of course, understand who your investors are too. Now, the important thing to, to recognize is that you're signing a contract. You can say, I probably have two, $300,000 in investors. They already said they won't invest with me. But you're signing a contract without the rest of it right now. And it's a really, really scary place to be. What I want the listener to know is that this happens frequently, right? Entrepreneurs do stuff without really any guarantee for success. Yeah. So you do something and there's no plan B, right? You've got to make it work. And this was an example of that. What I find interesting, and this is something that I observe over and over again, is the first deal. Now, this one kind of slowed you down a little bit because of what you went through. 
But had it gone a little smoother, and actually it did its job, right? You learned a bunch of lessons, and then you decided to go back into it more intentionally, not nor by accident. And all of a sudden, you become this giant magnet, right? All of a sudden, you get that first deal, that 22 unit, and then you attracted some capital and more and more capital. And then you got into the second unit, right? And so you just start attracting deals and you start attracting money. Can you talk a little bit more about the importance of the first deal? And this is a perfect example because you hardly made any money with it. Yeah. Right. So really from an economic standpoint, you're like, ah, what a giant waste of time. But was it? Was it a waste of time? Well, right. Let's take it back to the 15 unit, which technically was my first deal. I always call the 22 unit my first deal because I try to forget about that 15 unit. But really, in all honesty, yeah, for sure. That was a ton of learning that I had from it when I was able to finally step back from it and go, okay, what did I do wrong? What went right? It really, I think, did set me up for a lot of success in the future. And how I treated my investor to understanding what I really need to be looking for in that building and being comfortable knowing that even though things didn't go very well, I still made you know, a decent amount of money on the building. As long as you're conservative, and that was the other thing, is we were pretty conservative with our underwriting and things were going to look really, really good. Of course, even with that, we didn't hit it because of the problems I talked about. But when you're conservative with your underwriting, there's a really good chance you're still going to be able to make money even if things do go south. So that first deal, I like how you talk a lot about that in your podcast, getting that first deal done, because that's definitely the most important deal. It's just getting that first deal done. And even if you want to end up buying a 200-unit building, if you can buy a 20-unit or or whatever and get that first deal done and get that comfort, that's going to really snowball your business forward. That's exactly right. Todd, think back. If you could have a conversation with your younger self, and you were probably around, I don't know, 25, 26, I think, when you started. Now, I know you flipped a bunch of houses, had a bunch of rentals. You know, What would you tell yourself, Todd? What would you do differently? Like Knowing what you now know, what would you do differently? Oh my what would you tell yourself? Gosh, this could be a whole podcast episode in itself. <laughs> I would tell myself a couple things. One is educate yourself by surrounding yourself with the right people and understanding really the whole picture, right, of multifamily and of investing. And then I would tell myself, look, stop getting distracted and go after what you really want to do. That's probably my biggest regret, if you want to call it a regret, is that I got distracted into the flipping and the the single family rentals, and I didn't go to where I wanted to be in the multifamily. And had I done that a lot earlier, I truly feel like you know I would be way ahead of where I am now. But you know it is what it is, and I think you know right now I'm excited where I'm going. Speaking to somebody who is just getting started, what I would tell them is: look, get yourself educated, take action. And focus on the goal that you truly want to achieve. You can't worry so much about you need to graduate in order to buy multifamily. You don't need to graduate to buy multifamily. There's so many ways to learn and to get involved in it and to become prepared, but you don't need to wait like I did, you know, eight years to graduate. All right. So you're having a conversation with yourself and the young Todd's like, all right, I want to do multifamily, but I think I'll do that when I graduate. And the older, wiser Todd goes, no, you don't, you idiot. Here's what you do. The younger self's going, no, I can't do this. I don't have any money. I don't have any experience. And the wiser Todd, what do you tell yourself? How do you get yourself over that 
that hump. So knowing what you now know, you could even get your younger self to get in a multifamily immediately. What does that conversation look like? What are you telling yourself? Yeah. And this answer is going to be different for everyone. So there's a lot of different ways. And, and so listen to this podcast because everybody gives different answers and there's a lot of different ways to do it. But my answer would be do exactly what I did, flip houses, buy rentals, get your experience that way, but don't spend so much time doing that. While you're doing that from day one, find apartment investors, current apartment investors in your market and figure out how you can add value to them and add great value to them. I want to be able to get involved with them. And then the other thing that I probably would have done is I would have invested with them as well or tried to at least because I want to be able to see what they're doing. How are they successful and what mistakes they are making that's going to help propel you so much farther than doing single family houses. Single family houses, they're not apartment buildings. By buying, you know, 50 single family houses, that didn't make me a great apartment investor. Buying no, one or two. I found the same way. Yeah, exactly. Buying one or two, it might get you to that comfort level and it helps, you know, that conversation with investors go big quicker. That's way more important. Because the opportunity was ripe. I mean, you know, when you were flipping houses, the opportunity was ripe. And buying single families, it was a great opportunity. So I wouldn't necessarily not do that. I just wouldn't have been both feet in and whole body in and and all my mind in. I would be focusing on what I really want to do. And like I said, I would be getting educated and trying to team up with people that are really doing it. The thing, two things I heard is get educated. With that, you would have known that, oh my gosh, there's actually things you can do to overcome your lack of experience and, and your lack of money, right? It's education. And then the same thing by surrounding yourself with people. Uh, I remember, I think it was episode 77, I had Peely and Jason Yaruzzi on there. And Jason in particular was the go-getter and his wife was kind of like, oh, why don't we, you know, putting the brakes on him. But that's what he said is he got himself in people that did this stuff and very quickly his comfort zone expanded oh, like yeah. this. Yeah. So his first deal was like a 94 unit because he was surrounded by these guys doing 200 units and you're around these guys for long enough. You're like, yeah, why am I, why am I messing around with a 10 unit? Like that makes no sense to me. Yep. And there's different ways to expand a comfort zone. Flipping a house, maybe one. Going to a boot camp, educating certainly is another way to do it and surround yourself with people that just talk about it as if it's not a big deal. And all of a sudden you start thinking, you know what? You're right. It really isn't a big deal because he's doing it. He's doing it. He doesn't appear to be a lot smarter than I am. And so your comfort zone starts to expand much farther where you are and allows you to get into this kind of stuff. So that's a really good point. Anything else you can think of? Well, you know, what you said on the on the flipping houses, I mean, if you flip five houses, that fifth flip, or even probably your second flip, you're not going to gain more experience by flipping 150 houses. I can tell you that much. So just because I flipped 150 houses doesn't mean I somehow am a better apartment investor. I learned what I needed to learn on the first, you know, one, two flips about renovations and maybe five flips. I mean, I had some construction background in the beginning, but, you know, I learned about property management on my first few deals. You know, I learned that property management isn't for me. <laughs> so don't graduate, just go right to it. Just do it. Yeah, just do, just it. do it. At one point, you quit your job. So think yeah. back for a minute. And I know you kind of transitioned, you went part time, uh, you know, whatever. Yeah. But the last day, like, what was your life like, you know, when you were all of a sudden at home? You're like, oh my gosh, I'm not actually working. What was your life like there afterwards? Oh boy, it's so hard to think back. <laughs> that was a while ago, but I know I was never nervous about it. I was very prepared. I needed to actually prepare my wife more than anything because she didn't want me to quit at first. I went part time and then I quit completely. But 
the numbers were there for me. So I, I did a little different. I did, just didn't run into real estate and quit my job and hope that real estate worked. I made sure real estate worked. I had you know, 35, 40 grand coming in in, in rental income by the time I quit my $30,000 a year job. And I was doing some flips and, you know, so I had double my income. I was never nervous about it. I was, I was more just relieved and excited, excited to go on to the next chapter, excited of, you know, now I can actually spend real time on this business. What can it become? It was a great decision. I'm happy I did it. There's many people that have asked me, do you regret, you know, not teaching anymore? No, I don't. <laughs> like, there's never a day that goes by that I wish I was teaching. Yeah. That's interesting. You kind of feel most people just do it because they're so fulfilled and it wasn't like that it wasn't. for you. And you can have a great job and it's not fulfilling for you. You're just like, what am I doing here? Yeah. What are you really excited about, Todd? I'm excited to just continue to grow this multifamily business, the syndication. You know, I've had a lot of great conversations within the last year with a, a lot of investors, current active investors, potential investors. And then, you know, just building this business. My goal for 2018 is to buy six to 800 units and just continue to grow. I'm excited for that. I love this business. It's so much fun. I tell my wife this all the time and I say it on my podcast. For me, every day is a Saturday. I just, I love it. And that's the other thing. I'm looking forward to, I've got a podcast called Pillars of Wealth Creation and, and Michael, I'm going to have you on the show. And, and that's just, you know, it's a podcast. Not quite like yours, you know, you're focused on apartments. And so I thought there's so many people that have great knowledge in apartments. I want to talk a lot about if you're going to be an apartment investor or a real estate investor or really anything, but how do you make your business successful? And that's a big thing that I think a lot of people don't focus on that are apartment people or that are single family people or just real estate in general. They don't focus on how do I build my business? They're always worried about learning about real estate, which is great. You have to be very knowledgeable in real estate, but you also have to be able to build and create a business as well, because that's truly what it is if you're going to be successful. Yeah, that's right. So on that note, how can people find you, Todd, if they want to connect with you? Yeah. So if people want to connect with me, they can check me out on my webpage. It's venturedproperties.com. So it's venture and then D is in Dexheimer, properties.com. They can also send me an email, Todd at VentureDProperties.com. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on, you know, bigger pockets. I don't know where else I am. Facebook, maybe. <laughs> so they can definitely look me up as well. I'm pretty active on LinkedIn, I guess, in bigger pockets. So good. Yeah, we'll put that in the show notes as well. And just for listener, the podcast is Pillars of Wealth Creation. So definitely check that out as well. So Todd, I just want to thank you for being here and sharing your story and inspiring us. I really appreciate it. Appreciate being on the show. It's, it's been fun. All right. Hope you joined that story with uh, Todd Dexheimer here. And you know, I'm always inspired with people who figure out a way to make it work despite the odds. And yet again, another example where Todd spent years flipping houses, holding houses before he could figure out he could actually get started with multifamily. He kind of talked about what he would do differently. And, and I'm just trying to save you guys some pain and sorrow and get you there faster by getting into multifamily right away because you can always raise the money if you don't have it, which most people don't. And you can always overcome your lack of experience in ways that we talked about. Get your education and surround yourself with like-minded individuals. So if you haven't uh, done so already, just uh, go ahead and give me a review in iTunes. Love seeing those. It also exposes the show to a wider audience. And if you haven't done so either, grab my free ebook called The Secret to Raising Money 
to buy your first apartment building deal. And that's on themichaelblanc.com forward slash ebook, themichaelblanc.com. Just go to themichaelblanc.com and you'll see it there as well. Ton of free resources as well for multifamily. If you're ready to take the next step, check out all of our programs. We have uh, online courses and coaching courses. We have live events coming up in April and also October. So check those out as well. We'd love to have you there. All right, you guys, listen, I really appreciate it. Hope you found this valuable. I will catch you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Apartment Building Investing Podcast with Michael Block. For more free podcasts, articles, and videos, go to themichaelblanc.com. There, you can also download the free ebook, The Secret to Raising Money to Buy Your First Apartment Building. Till next time.